When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to Origin Story. Each week we talk about a word, an idea, a figure, an event from history, explore its origins and evolution, and try and unpack how it affects discourse today. I'm Dorian Lidsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name is Ian Dunt. I'm the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, and I'm a columnist for The Eye. Last week, we had our first episode of Climate Change Denial, where we looked at the origins of the movement that tried to subvert the scientific findings on global warming and its origins predominantly, oddly enough, in the Cold War and Reagan's Star Wars program. We also looked at like, lots of the motives behind the people involved and largely came to the conclusion that it was a sort of cult of neoliberalism and vested interests that was trying to undermine scientific discovery. Now, we've reached the crucial part in the story where Dorian has to read a bunch of climate change denial literature and slowly go out of his mind. Because I wanted to know what the techniques were. So I'm just going to mention a, a couple. They're not, they're not, these are not great reads. The juicy stuff is, is, coming, <laughs> is coming in a bit. But Thomas Gale Moore wrote a book in 1998 called Climate of Fear, Why We Shouldn't Worry About Glo- uh, Global Warming. Um, this was published by the Cato Institute. So, of course, we can see. Which we should say is another one of these think tanks. These right with think tanks. One chapter is called Happiness is a Warm Planet. <laughs> now, his whole thing is he, he is an economist, not a climate scientist. And he uses cost benefit analysis to sort of assess are carbon reductions worthwhile? Is the economic hit you're going to take worthwhile? Now, of course, the only way you can do that is to dismiss everything on the other side. Right. So it's like, again, you found the conclusion you want. And so, it's hilarious how much he dismisses, like nothing. Biodiversity says is overrated because <laughs> we don't really, we don't really need it. Like, the extinctions aren't happening. If they were, it, it wouldn't matter that much. And I looked at the words he uses: hysteria, scaremongering, doomsayers, propaganda, religion. Mm. Similarly, now whenever someone wants to attack something, they go, "It's a, like a religion." Oh, yeah, Woke yeah. is like a religion. Although I've done that, I used to do that with it's Brexit a, all the time. Yeah, I and mean, then I kind of think it was though. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's different when we do it. No, no, but I mean, <laughs> the, the language is telling. And his side, meanwhile, is guided by rationality, right? which is great. And Nigel Lawson, the late Nigel Lawson, former chancellor under Margaret Thatcher, his book was called An Appeal to Reason, A Cool Look at Global Warming. <laughs> I, yeah, I see what he did there. I, it's not happening. Mm. Now, the most reasonable guy, I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> Um, it is important that you mention that. You know that this is a podcast. Right, right because people won't know that I don't, I'm being sarcastic. Um, is, a, is a guy called Bjorn Lomborg, author of a 2001 book called The Skeptical Environmentalist. Now, finally, if we come back to Julian Simon, Paul Ehrlich's nemesis. So just before he dies, he gets a big profile in Wired. Now, Bjorn Lomborg, who is a Greenpeace member and a statistician from Denmark, reads this in the bookshop, flicks through it and goes, hmm, he seems very down on global warming theory. You hmm. know, he must be wrong because I'm a green. So he investigates it. But do you know what just, happens? Just to be clear, th- there was a slight 
kind of Danish so I do a Danish tilt to your... Because I am a green. <laughs> right. I am a cool environmental no. guy. It wasn't an invitation for you to... But no, if you want to do with so the this, quotes no, that way... This story yeah. is really important because he he investigates the claims. But do you know what? He can't debunk them because <laughs> Julian Simon was right. So he said, uh, I'm a left-wing guy. And if, no, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> no. So he got loving profiles... Uh, named one of the world's 100 most influential people in various publications. Jesus, wow, my God. He's young, handsome, gay, European. Mm. So he's not like one of their baddies. Right, right, right. Uh, he actually said, I'm a left-wing guy and a vegetarian because I don't want to kill animals. You can't play the he's right-wing so he's wrong argument. Hmm. And he doesn't deny man-made global warming. He just says you don't have to do anything about it. It's not that big a deal. So that's the cornucopian thing. And this is why he's embraced because he doesn't sound like Fred Seitz. It just seems like, well, this guy, he's the environmentalist is in the title of his book. Mm, mm. He's just a skeptic. So there's there's all these different methods being tried out. What's the content like of that book? It's, it's very it's very boring. <laughs> it's very dense. He boasts that he's got three thousand footnotes, right. but many of the footnotes are online articles. They're not scientific papers i mean the one of again a core theme of this podcast movie be very wary of people who boast about their footnotes who weigh their footnotes. Yeah, exactly. right um but you know he becomes like the cool young uh, scandy environmentalist mm, mm. the and on the other hand if you think of it almost like a sort of pincer movement you know the kind of vote leave versus mm, mm. nigel farage leave.eu yeah technique so the supervillain is senator james inhofe he comes in in, the, in 1984 as a Gingrich Republican. Gingrich is the person who really turns the Republicans against climate change, mm -hmm. puts on lots of hearings, uh, really starts catering to the deniers. It could be argued that Gingrich is the sort of guy that morphs them from a sort of mainstream centre-right party into a kind of blithering, yeah. vicious culture war right it starts party. to destroy that part, that cross-party consensus yes, on this yes, issue. Yes. So Inhofe amazingly takes huge donations from uh, oil and gas companies. Um, madness I would never have seen that coming and he was largely responsible for foiling the McCain-Lieberman Climate Stewardship Act in 2003 which would have been the first US act to um, cap greenhouse gas emissions mm -hmm. it's really mm -hmm. important it's kind of forgotten now but a road not taken there's a notorious speech that he delivers there's two really interesting quotes. One is, with all the hysteria, all of the fear, all of the phony science, could it be that man-made global warming is the greatest hoax ever perpetrated <laughs> on the American people? Sure sounds like it. So that's really going into like, this is hysteria, this is a religion, this is essentially a conspiracy. Yeah. That somehow 95% of the world's climate scientists uh, are in on. <laughs> the other thing he says, and this is where we really get into the language of denial, since the claim that global warming is caused by man-made emissions is, is simply untrue and not based on sound science. Mm -hmm. And what conservatives started doing in this concerted campaign was they used the phrase sound science versus politically correct junk science. Mm. And so sound science is like rationality. You hear it and you go, well, who doesn't want that? Mm. It's all about the facts. And so what they do is they take a minority position and they go, well, where are the people who are really concerned about the scientific method and keeping a cool head? Yeah. And then yeah. you paint the vast majority with all of their, you know, data as like a sort of hysterical, like Marxist hippie cult. <laughs> 
Which, when you, you know, when you actually look at, it, you're just like, but that doesn't make any. It doesn't no, make any at, sense. Look at these guys. As a <laughs> as a conspiracy, these are like these really cautious guys. They don't want to be in the. You know, they hate being in, uh, on TV. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen yeah. climate scientists on TV? Yeah. No, but that is a thing that you come up with when reading about stuff all the time, which is that the, the guys that do the attacks, the deniers, love the TV. They're really comfortable operating the political system, operating the media system. When it comes to the scientists, they're not used to any of that stuff. They're not used to having TV cameras in their face. They've spent most of their lives in labs and, you know, well away from, from the lights. And actually, it takes them a really long time before they're confident enough and recognize the, the, the sort of political and moral requirement enough for them to be much more forward-facing and aggressive in their retort. And they think that kind of everyone understands the scientific methods. Yes, so exactly, asked, exactly. Are you 100% certain? Well, they go, well, no, because in science, there's no such thing as 100% certainty. And people go, ah, so there's doubt. <laughs> so there's a debate. There's a debate. Oh, right. There's a debate. <laughs> so we have this sort of decline throughout the 90s and the basis of this stuff, where really the right in the US and the UK turn against climate science quite decisively. So, you know, by 1995, Congressman Dana Rohrbacher says, it's trendy science that is popping up in liberal left politics rather than good science. They hadn't quite settled on sound science at that point. Uh, and, and this goes on and on. And it is effective. I mean, you, you fast forward to 2006. 2006, you've got a Times poll that finds only 56% of Americans thought that average global temperatures had, had risen. An ABC poll found that 64% thought there was a lot of disagreement between the scientists over climate change. Well and done, then, the media. Yeah, great work. Great work, guys. We're patting ourselves on the back as we speak. And then you get Climategate. And this is a real... I mean, it's a real example of how vicious this stuff can be and how effective it can be. So this is three weeks before the 2009 COP15 summit in Copenhagen. And hackers stole a cache of data from Phil Jones, a guy called Phil Jones, at the Climate Research Unit at the University of East Anglia. And it's put up on a server in Russia so people can access it. The climate denial movement just gets involved in a major way, just trawling through this guy's emails. And from thousands and thousands of emails, they find two killer phrases. Phrase one, hide the decline. Mm. Phrase two, the nature trick. And with these two phrases, they create this sort of storyline that, that scientists have been sort of hiding a, an actual decline in global temperatures, and that they were using a kind of nefarious tactic, a trick with which to do it. These, these phrases reverb around the world for months. I mean, the media reaction is instant and prolonged. It goes on and on. I mean, it's a Daily Express front page story. Their headline is The Big Climate Change Fraud. Christopher Brooker in the Daily Telegraph, the worst scientific scandal of our generation. James Dellingpole in the, in the Telegraph, a blow to the anthropogenic global warming lobby's credibility from which it is never likely to recover. Former Chancellor Nigel Lawson in the Times, the integrity of the scientific evidence on which the British government claimed to base far-reaching and hugely expensive policy decisions has been called into question. The Guardian, the Guardian, eventually dedicate an entire week of front page splashes on this stuff. One of which says, key study by East Anglia professor was based on, on suspect figures. And that is then used by the negotiators going to the Copenhagen summit mm. To, to act against the science. So the Saudi negotiator for the Copenhagen summit says, it appears from the details of the scandal that there is no relationship whatsoever between human activities and climate change. D does it? 
No. Is that what it showed? <laughs> no, it was surprised you to learn that that is not what it showed. Okay, so what's going on? Around the year 1960, trees started behaving strangely. So we, we use trees as a proxy for global temperatures before we have thermometer data and sometimes afterwards. The reason is, you know, if it's a really warm year, the tree grows more. So the ring is fatter, it's wider. If it's a cold year, they grow less. So it's a thinner ring. Mm. So you can use it going back. Basically, we have data going back a thousand years looking at that. And we have, then you have thermometers are invented. We have really good data from thermometers from about 1860 onwards. And they tally. They completely tally. So it indicates that they were very helpful to us. But about 1960, they start doing quite bizarre things. And we're not entirely sure why, but the data from actual measurements and proxy measurements, i.e. trees, starts to diverge. It could be because the sort of warming-induced drought, or it could be because there was a reduction in sunlight due to air pollution that sort of stunted the growth. We don't know. But it kind of doesn't matter, right, in terms of this, because you're just like, well, it's fine. We've got thermometers We don't now. need to rely on the trees. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We're kind of past that point. So in 1999, Phil Jones is asked to produce an illustration for the cover of a report by the World Meteorological Organization showing temperature growth over centuries. And he's got the tree trunk data, goes back a thousand years. He's got the instrumental measurements, that goes back to 1860. Uh, if he includes the post-1960 tree data in mm. these illustrations, it's going to show cooling that is not accurate. We know it's not accurate because we've got the other measurements. Mm. So in one of the emails, remember, these are just emails. He's not writing it for an article. It's just chat. He says, you know, oh, I'm going to hide the decline using a trick of the trade. That's what he means by the trick, uh. which is just something that Michael Mann used in a Nature pa paper once. Nature is sort of you know, the UK's preeminent science journal. And it's just you simply stop including the tree data when it stops being accurate. That is the full extent of what was going on. Of the greatest scandal in <laughs> scientific scandal history. That has undermined all of the... I mean, there's some other stuff about, is he responding to FOI requests on weather data? And the thing is, he can't respond to all of them. You know, he's in the Met Office, right? So he has to... You know, the FOI requests come to him, the Freedom of Information request. And he can't because from various countries, they keep it as commercial data. They won't give it away and blah, blah. But it's just like... There is no story here. It is absolutely meaningless. So you've had several inquiries. You have the Common Science and Technology Committee. They conclude, quote, the scientific reputation of Professor Jones remains intact. The University of East Anglia has its own inquiry by Sir Moore Russell. He credits the rigor and the honesty of the scientists, says they're not in doubt. A third inquiry in, co in consultation with the Royal Society found that, quote, there is no evidence of any deliberate scientific malpractice in any of the work of the climate research group. I'm quite affected by this story because the thing is, and this gives you an indication of the sort of strength of what they do, it worked on me. Right. Now, I don't spend a huge amount of time looking at climate change. So that's not sort of one of the areas that I sort of work in, mm -hmm. that I focus on. You know, obviously I'm on board. <laughs> you know, I, I also believe in sound science, which is why I believe in climate change. But I got from the general fuzziness of it, and in particular the fact that there was pick up from The Guardian, just the fact that, oh, someone somewhere did something yeah. dodgy and they've let the side down. You know what I mean? Like, we need to get over that. And I, I didn't pay much attention to the details, but that, you got that kind of osmosis of something dodgy happened somewhere. So at that point, it's working on you. And it is just the most malicious, cynical, unrepresentative assault on good science that you can imagine.
lot of time people don't know enough to to sort of counteract that. They don't really don't understand all the context that you've just explained that we were able to know later. So they just see these phrases that have been picked out maliciously. Yeah. And they go, oh, okay then. And what's good about learning about stuff <laughs> is that you're, <laughs> you're actually able to spot bullshit and spot mm-hmm. stuff that you maybe wouldn't, and misrepresentations that I wouldn't have noticed before. And I just want to talk about, before we do the kind of, you know, the, the, the wrap up, I want to talk about two examples of denier art it's not really art is it <laughs> denier wow. i would say denier storytelling right <laughs> so one of them which i'm not sure if you remember channel 4 documentary from 2007 called the great global warming swindle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right directed by martin durkin formerly of the revolutionary communist party no oh, alongside people like claire fox and life. frank yeah. ferradi who called global warming a moral crusade against humanity these are the spiked online guys spiked online guys for a brief uh, period had Minia Mirza, one of their people heading yeah. the policy unit in johnson's number 10 and were at the heart of government for a brief durkin moment. later made brexit the movie Right. Uh, he called environmentalism unscientific irrational and anti-humanist what a great imdb page that guy's got Absolutely staggering that Channel Four broadcast this as part of the debate. Because <laughs> we had we had a documentary about how global warming's real, and so now we've got one that, about how it's not real. So it's it's sort of fast because it's an absolute rogues gallery of deniers. Like all the people that we've been talking about, you've got Nigel Lawson, Fred Singer, uh, Nigel Calder, Patrick Michaels, and good old Piers Corbyn. Mm. Wonder what he's up to now. Oh shit, he pops up. Oh yeah, all the way through. Yeah. So Durkin uses words like shrill, frenzy, hysteria, panic, propaganda, the same, the same sort of trick. Refers to it as global warming theory. <laughs> you know, just, just an idea. This is what we're talking about here, the persecution, the, the attacks on scientists, including James Hansen during the Bush administration, mm-hmm. from the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the attacks that you're just talking about on Phil Jones. Mm. But apparently lots of scientists are afraid to speak out against global warming theory, but not right. because yeah. they'll be vilified and ostracized, but not these brave heretics. <laughs> now, I can't go through the entire thing, but there were two things where I was like, armed with actual facts. I was like, this this isn't true. It completely distorts the history of climate science. So inevitably, there's a clip from The Weather Machine, mm-hmm. the, the Ice Age documentary from 1974. And I thought, well, this is quite awkward because because is he going to mention that Nigel Calder, one of his interviewees, made this? <laughs> he does. But then Calder says that far from pushing cooling theory, he was simply reflecting the consensus of the time, <laughs> which is a lie. And I've read the accompanying book in which he compares the future to Ragnarok. <laughs> he is literally one of the people most responsible for pushing cooling theory. And he's just like, I was just reflecting what all the scientists were telling mm-hmm. me. Then Durkin says that in 1974, global warming theory was considered eccentric and absurd, which is also a lie because it was actually quite established and was the mainstream scientific position. So anyway, there's this fantasy timeline in which global warming theory is just crazy until it takes off in the 80s. Why does it take off in the 80s, you might ask? Mm. Because Margaret Thatcher wants to shut down the coal mines and promote nuclear power. And bribes the Royal Society into producing the science. Oh, wow, my God. Even though she didn't start talking about it until three years after the miners' strike. Well, that's, I mean, that's the least crazy I mean, part of what just got right. said. I know. So, so it's this conspiracy. What they always talk about, all the guests just go, um, well, we haven't been funded by fossil fuel companies. But the only people that say that are the ones that haven't. 
Other people like Fred Singer, who clearly had been, mm. they're not asked to say that on camera <laughs> because it's not true. <laughs> Meanwhile, their main argument about the scientists, why would scientists go along with this? And they go, well, research funding. If you don't mention global, if you're not into global warming, you won't get any research funding. So it's basically these scientists are all deeply corruptible and are producing bad science yes. simply for the money. So this conspiracy that is being laid out in a very cheerful way, it's a very kind of smooth, slightly glib style. It's a conspiracy between corrupt scientists, hippies, neo-Marxists, and Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> Which I would love to be at the love to have been at the meetings. Yeah, we're very fraught. Even more fraught than a socialist worker party meeting. So that is one surprisingly successful documentary. I went on there to uh, put a negative YouTube comment. All the other comments were like, wasn't this wonderful? And oh, so, wow. Yeah, like, you know. I mean, I don't know which part shocked me more, that or the fact that you leave YouTube comments. I never have before. <laughs> I literally, no, you I literally just want to go, this is disgraceful <laughs> bullshit and blatantly dishonest. <laughs> so anyway, then I read a book, a fiction book, novels, they call them, um, <laughs> by you. Michael Crichton called State of Fear from 2004. Michael Crichton being involved in this is an extremely disappointing thing for me, given that, I mean, Jurassic, I mean, Jurassic Park, right? Like when you're a kid, I remember the fact that it felt scientific, right? felt exciting. You know, you lo I love that as a kid and I kind of love it now. And now to see this other whole other side of him is extremely disparate. This was his technique from the Andromeda strain on in Jurassic Park. It's like footnotes, footnotes. I'm a scientist. He had like a medical degree. He was nice. like a yeah. research scientist and um, became this celebrity denier. So in State of Fear, the plot is an environmental organization is struggling to raise funds because people aren't scared enough of global warming. So obviously they team up with a group of eco-terrorists who use technology to stage disasters, <laughs> which they can blame on global warming because there are no real disasters related to global warming. And he uses those graphs and footnotes and appendices and yada, yada, yada. Obviously, he cherry picks the data. Also, after it came out, many scientists he cited complained that he'd misrepresented them. Also, he was using real people's names. Oh, yeah, like real data. These are all real data. Mm -hmm. But people complain that, like, that's not what I said, or you've taken the wrong bit of data there. His big theory, hence the title State of Fear, is that global warming is a superstition, which he compares to witchcraft. Uh, and it's been whipped up by politicians and academics and journalists because to fill the void after the Cold War ended. Hmm. Since the fall of the Berlin Wall created a vacuum of fear, something had to fill it. Oh, interesting. Now, this novel is climate denier bingo. It is fascinating to read because it was marketed as a mainstream thriller, but it's just full of these like think tank talking points. <laughs> I, I'm going to give you two lines that generally made my jaw drop. One of them is banning DDT killed more people than Hitler, Ted. <laughs> Which I, I would not understood what the hell he was talking about if I didn't yeah. know about all yeah. the DDT thing. The other is from an appendix non-fiction appendix about the dangers of politicizing science. And he gives, for example, eugenics. Mm -hmm. That was a bad thing. <laughs> he goes, I'm not arguing that global warming is the same as eugenics, but the similarities are not superficial. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you kind of are arguing that, aren't you? Like you brought it up. Uh, so this demented conspiracy theory sells millions of copies. Uh, oh, shit. This is a success, this book. Oh, yeah. George Bush secretly invites Crichton to the White House, where apparently they were in near total agreement. Oh, fuck. Not long after this, Bush says publicly there was a fundamental debate about global, whether global warming was man-made or natural. Mm. 
when, of course, there was not. No. These, the documentary was successful to degree. State of Fear was extremely successful. And it's pulling in all this stuff. It's pulling in kind of reputable voices. Mm. It's pulling in kind of distorted science. It's making out sort of vaguely without spilling out that there is a conspiracy, you know. So what's striking about the story that you just outlined is that I could imagine it being quite attractive to right and left. The stuff around eco-terrorists obviously sort of appeals to the right. But the stuff around, you know, the state purposefully maintaining this sort of thing of fear right. is a classic kind of left-wing way yeah. of looking at the world. And ironically, the argument I think that, that, that a lot of people make, like Oreskes and Conway and other authors that I've read, is that it, it was indeed the denial was filling a void after the Cold War. Yes. They needed yes. a new enemy. Environmentalists were like a new enemy. Mm. So it was, you know, there's some truth in it, but in the opposite direction. <laughs> Guys, thank you. Uh, part of the thing that makes doing this podcast worthwhile is the extraordinary amount of love and support and, you know, criticisms of my pronunciation that we get from our Patreon crew. We are genuinely thankful of each and every single one of you. So thanks for sticking with us, guys. Uh, thanks in particular this week to... Vanessa Rowlands, Ryan McDonnell, Marion Saccharin, Simeon Williamson, and Malcolm McLean. So in order to wrap up, I thought it might be useful to just sort of break down like the techniques that they're using, sort of summarize. Okay, yep, yep. So I'll sort of, I'll, I'll sort of launch them and then you can, <laughs> you know, chip in. So you start with hostility towards mainstream scientists. Yeah. Which I think we've now, over the course of the last hour, documented quite extensively. Amazing. Reagan's budget director, David Stockman, said he didn't want to consult White House scientists because we know what we want to do and they'll only give us contrary advice. <laughs> <laughs> there's this political resentment and there's another congressman called John Doolittle. Uh, I'm not going to get involved in a mumbo jumbo of peer-reviewed documents. <laughs> <laughs> so two, what do you do when you've discredited the scientist? You find your own contrarian scientist, however fringe they might be. And then you make out that they're these mavericks who are being censored by the establishment. So mm -hmm. early on, it was Fred Seitz, Fred Singer, Bill Nirenberg. And later on, obviously, some of these people passed away. There's there's new ones. And there's a real, I mean, look, there's, you know, there's this 1980s uh, document from a senior executive at Philip Morris, the tobacco company, right, yeah. which which calls them uh, the white coats. And it's just like, look, we've got this building evidence on passive smoking. We just need sciencey looking people <laughs> who are going to come out and look very reputable and yeah. authoritative and, and counter it. And in almost every case, they're not actually doing the kind of science that the, the, that the data concerns. It's an adjacent or actually quite a distant field. This is again what conspiracy theorists do. They always go reputable. Yes. Award-winning. Yeah. It's like, well, maybe they might be, but is that relevant to their claims here? Yeah, yeah. No, and there's various kind of, there's a real paper trail. There's these there's memos explaining exactly this process. And we saw the same during COVID, right? No, that was These are exactly the kind oh, of people right. that were deployed during Reputable. COVID to cast doubt. Yeah, they were like a physicist or they were a mathematician or they were yeah, an yeah. economist. But, you know, you get to put doctor in front of their name. That's the important right. thing. Right, or former nurse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, well, I guess she knows everything about yeah. COVID. <laughs> 
So three is you set up think tanks with money from oil companies. So on. So we've talked about them, the, the Marshall Institute, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, all of that. Front mm-hmm. organizations, journals, and, you know, discussion forums. It's the same logic as the European Research Group or the COVID Research Group, isn't it? Yeah. You're just yeah. doing research. Yeah. And then you target friendly journalists and sympathetic politicians who then cite the think tank reports, giving them credibility. So it's a sort of feedback loop. Now, four, which is, I suppose, the big one we're talking about here is is weaponized doubt. Oh, manufacturing uncertainty, it's called. The thing is that science operates within the realm of doubt. That is how it proceeds. Let me, t- let me take a quote that I've always found very, very beautiful from Jacob Brunofsky, who's a sort of mathematician and philosopher and one of the mm. writers who's most affected me in my life. He says, science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. We always feel forward for what is to be hoped. Every judgment in science stands on the edge of error and is personal. Science is a tribute to what we can know, although we are fallible. That is how it operates. Areas of uncertainty. You look at those IPCC reports. It's like if when they say, when they use the word likely, that is not just a word that they use. That has a, st- a yes. percentage risk calculation yeah. attached to it. If they use very likely. I think it's ninety percent. I think mm. it goes up to ninety five percent. They are being very precise. There's certain areas, you know, that there's a whole huge controversy over, you know, ocean temperatures, which basically is as a result of quite a complex thing of the kind of technology they were using in the seventies and how accurate it was. And mm. now we've got other stuff. In all these areas, they go, okay, fine. We know we've got a problem with. Some of the data from sort of, you know, the, the 80s and the early 90s. So what we're going to do here is we're going to reduce the statistical probability of us being right. Yeah. Okay. You know, you're operating within doubt. What is the peer review process? Except that, you know, it's to say, no, we go fellow experts to just critically appraise the things that we are saying. And yet it's precisely these processes that are grabbed hold of as proof that you are wrong by people who say you're not doing proper science. Well, it's, they, like, it's precisely the fact that they are doing proper science that you have utilized and weaponized against. One of the most potent phrases is, is, and they've been doing this for decades, is more research is needed. <laughs> Go, okay, this may be, but it's not settled science. Uh, so more research is needed. And the absolute tragedy here is that since uh, James Hansen uh, delivered his testimony in 1988, mm-hmm. We produce more carbon than in the entirety of human history before that point. Hmm. Jesus, I have no idea. If we had acted in that 88 to 92 period, that really crucial period, we would need to make much less drastic reductions now. We could have, it would have been a much easier transition to a Mm. low carbon economy. Whereas the, the longer we wait, the worse it gets, the more dramatic the measures you have to take are. It's so funny, it's like lockdown, right? It just feels exactly the same as lockdown. Right. It's like, well, the longer you wait, the longer it's going to go on for and the more severe the lockdown has all, to be. Always more research is needed. But sometimes mm. the research, as it turned out with damage uh, to the ozone layer from CFCs, is that the research, the actual evidence later showed that the, it, the damage was worse than the modelling said. Yes, exactly. So the assumption yeah. is often that the mm. predictions are too dire. Sometimes they're too optimistic. We're finding again and again that that period, 88 to 92, is this real moment where so many things were possible. It's the same as, you know, in the nuclear yeah, yeah, episode. Yeah. And 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 I'm I'm quite haunted by how wasted so many oh, of yeah. these opportunities were. Absolutely fucked. But you know, because of <laughs> because of these people deliberately trying to fuck it, it wasn't just like oh exactly. complacency. Yes. It was yes. there was a concerted effort. So five, I think, is exploit public ignorance. So most people don't understand the scientific method which is why they don't understand what uncertainty is the, you know, mm-hmm. the norm. They don't understand how complex 
climate is and how counterintuitive it can be. So you literally have people just saying, you know, when it's snowing, there's so much for global warming. Yeah, like yeah, the, people yeah. really have very little understanding of, of, of what climate is and how it works. So it can be exploited. And nobody except climate scientists understands all the science. So you can bombard people with data like Bjorn Lundberg does with his 3,000 footnotes, like Michael Crichton does. And it's like, you need... And it's easy for me now because these books came out 20 years ago. And so a lot of the debunking has been done. But actually, a lot of climate scientists had to spend a lot of time mm -hmm. going through that and probably having less impact than the original false information. I think there's also a public sense, right, that science means cold, hard facts. That's not what science is. No. It's, you know, the processing your way through doubt you know, by observation, by testing, by peer review. And so instead, when, whenever you get, you know, any kind of degree of uncertainty, so you can have like, let's say, we know that there's a correlation between carbon and temperatures. We know there's a correlation between cigarettes and cancer, but we might not know what the mechanism is for a really long time, right? That, that leaves you this whole area where you can just create political debate yeah. if you're trying to slow things down. And everyone's like, oh, so that can't be science, right? Because science is about two plus two equals four <laughs> rather than this sort of, this sort of mist, the, crawling your way through the mist of uncertainty. Jesus so Christ, poetic. crawling your way like through that. the mist. No, it's not bad. That's pretty good, yeah. Um, uh, a memoir by Ian Dunn. <laughs> Now, which brings us to six, which is you exploit the media, you hack the media, you exploit both sidesism and impartiality codes. And what the media did, their fatal mistake here was treating climate change as a political issue. Exactly. Rather than a scientific one. The BBC kept making this mistake that you would get one person who represented 95% of scientists, one person who represented 5%, and that's being generous. And they present it 50-50. I guess because you can't have 19 scientists on one side and Nigel Lawson on mm. the other, right? So it's, oh, you can only have one on each side. 2018, Ofcom found that the BBC had broken its accuracy rules by stupidly interpreting its impartiality rules. And yes. only since then has the BBC stopped doing that. And that, by the way, was seven years after an independent review into BBC science coverage by the geneticist Steve Jones had warned them Mm. I mean, like, you're like seven years. It's it's an incredible. Let me tell you just a quick story from 2013. Right, this is Peter Stott, very very well regarded. The British scientist is working on sort of you know whether you can attribute climate change to humans. He was in negotiations in Stockholm um, IPCC sort of summit, long way into the night, interviewed. I mean, next morning by Newsnight by Radio Five Live, and then this is what happens next in his own words. He's suddenly told that he's going to be doing the World at One on Radio Four. That was a surprise. It was also a surprise when the BBC reporter handed me a set of headphones and his microphone to hold and walked away from me as though he wanted nothing to do with what came next. Then came a worse surprise. Through my headphones, I heard the radio producer in London telling me that they had already interviewed Professor Robert Merlin Carter for their report on the IPCC report. This was ridiculous. On the day of the most important scientific announcement on climate change for six years, the first news and current affairs programme to broadcast after its release was featuring one of the world's most prominent climate deniers. That report from World at One, you can listen to it, it starts with news of the agreement, it then immediately follows with a quote from Carter saying that no government that was sensible would ever try to get rid of climate change. Then a quick quote from then Secretary, Energy Secretary Ed Davey saying how good the report is. Then a really long interview with Carter calling it hocus pocus science. And then the interview would stop, the actual scientist. And he's just like, 
How can you, in 2013, how could you still have been in a position where this rudimentary error was going out on your flagship program, on your most respected media outlet? And the same thing happens in the American Exactly the same. Media, of course. And the thing is, this is a strategy on the right. So proponents of intelligent design, which is sort of like that tweaked creationism. Yeah, yeah, right? interesting. They couldn't get their theory to be taught alongside evolution, right? Because ah, their theory is bullshit. Because it's bullshit, yeah. So they used the slogan, <laughs> teach the controversy. Now, there isn't a scientific ah. controversy about evolution, but there is a political controversy, and therefore you should teach that and go, well, some people think this and some people think that. But it's you don't teach the controversy about whether the Earth is round or flat. Yes. And so I cannot say how much of a failure this was on the part of the media, including the BBC, including The Guardian, mm. you know, on, on occasion. Just this astonishing willingness to be fed a pack of lies by deniers. Yeah. And present yeah. that as kind of, well, this is legitimate. We have seen this so often. Like if, if you think back to the very first episode we did on McCarthy, yeah. the way that he yeah. hacked the media, it's the same basic thing. It's the same technique used again and again. And just, I mean, at some point, we need to do an episode on balance because it is, it's, it's not objectivity, not impartiality. These other words that are called synonymous with it, but that are actually not that problematic, but on balance and how hard it is to think your way through that. It's, it's very pronounced on science issues. But even when you get to something like Brexit, you then see the alternative to it. Oh, we're just, you know, we live through that. You just have a guy who's going to go like, well, I'm a customs expert and I'll tell you how this border works. It's like, oh, and now we'll go to Daniel Hannan to just gibber out of his mouth for a while. You sort of think like, no, the, if, if the job of the media is to inform, this seems a very piss poor way of going about it. And so the seventh method, which also is very revealing, is that you allege bad faith. So you accuse the scientists, they're either left wing or they just want more funding. Yeah. Right. So Seitz was once asked, why do all these climate scientists disagree with you? And he goes, most scientists are Democrats. I think it's as simple as that. <laughs> um, you know, accuse environmentalists then of wanting socialism. Wanting limits on freedom, uh, Reagan's Secretary of the Interior, famously also a great believer in the Book of Revelation, uh, described environmentalism as a left-wing cult dedicated <laughs> to bringing down the type of government I believe in. Also, you also get this in the famous right-wing conspiracy theorist book, Behold a Pale Horse by William Cooper, mm. where the New World Order is, uh, is trying to use environmentalism to weave its wicked ways. Now, you're saying it's a kind of, is conspiracy theory the right phrase? I think it is, because what it fundamentally alleges, and I'm not saying everyone believes that, because some people are just working for oil companies, it alleges that most of the world's scientists are deliberately perpetrating a hoax in order to justify controlling and impoverishing people yes. yep. on behalf of, like, the spooky left. Yeah. Like conspiracy theorists, they bombard you with this fringe research but if there's the tiniest error, or like you said, a word in an email mm. on the other side, they will pounce on that as absolutely damning. They share the same talking points. And like I said, phrases like sound science, which seem normal until you learn to sort of spot mm. them, pushed by these, these right-wing think tanks, all the while pretending that they are free-thinking individuals who are just asking questions. They came to their own conclusions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, one of the herd. But what they're doing, I think, is that they are projecting onto the other side, i.e. science, what they themselves want, which is to make the science fit a political goal. I think where it falls down as a conspiracy theory is that people who believe in global warming do not want regulation and restrictions 
I would love it, as I'm sure you would, if I could just consume as travel as much as I like. <laughs> like if this, if if I if this generally wasn't an issue, mm. that would be wonderful. So the idea that you know that so many people are engaged in pretending it's an issue when it's not because they just want to take people's cars away. <laughs> It is is batshit, and they're accusing the other side of it doing exactly what they're doing, which is making the science fit their political and economic mission. It's so blatant. It's so fraudulent. I, I don't think I've ever read a story where I so persistently heard people accusing others of doing the precise thing that they yeah. themselves were doing. In fact, at one point, there's even a there's actually even a word for it, which I think, as far as I can tell, comes from Martin McKee and Pascal Deltham, which is inversionism. They say there's, there's a variant of conspiracy theory, inversionism, in which some of one's own characteristics and motivations are attributed to others. And it's sort of true because you're just like, it's a plot to undermine real science in order to advance a political yeah. agenda. That's what they're constantly saying. Just like, how could, are, you, are you honestly unaware that this is what you yourself are? Or, or, or are you actually so cynical that you've just taken your own qualities and projected them onto your opponents? So there is basically a conspiracy. This is not conspiracy theory. It's a description of a number of people conspiring to produce a result mm. with enormous success thanks to the masochism and credulity of the media. And I wonder whether it doesn't, the conspiracy element doesn't follow from the breakdown in their ideology, their political ideology. You know, when you have that, you know, most of these guys come from very free market think tanks, they're neoliberal, you know, the, lots of the institutes, when we look at them, it's like the Ludwig von Mises Institute and blah, blah, blah. All of these instances, it's acid rain, whether it's smoking, whether it's climate change, they're all market failure. In every single instance, yeah. it's market failure requiring state intervention, right? And so you can either go, oh, shit, there's a real problem with my ideology. Or you can say, this is all made up by a conspiracy of socialist commies, you know? And clearly, the second evidently seems to be a more attractive option for them. Simply look at most of the deniers, see how many are neoliberals and libertarians, mm. right? Then look at the vast numbers of people, including most scientists, uh, who say that global warming is a problem. And tell me how many of those are socialists and Luddites. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it's, it's, a, it's a, there's very rarely, I would say that something appears to be unarguable. Mm. But this one does. This was a real, look at these bastards. <laughs> episode of Origin Story. So for people bored of King nuance and grey area. You are in luck. <laughs> I just want to thank some of the people who, by supporting us on Patreon, make it well worth my while to read Michael Crichton's State of Fear. It's Jared Marklu, Chris Findlay, Fiznix, Etsec97, possibly AI, and uh, Nathan Waddell. Hello, Nathan. Thanks to all of you. And that's the end of part two of Climate Denial. Thanks for listening. Please help spread the word by telling a friend, sharing on social media or giving us a star rating. You can find us on Twitter at Origin Story Cast. And if you want to go further, you can back us on Patreon to get bonus episodes, mini topics and answering your questions, access to live events. And if you're interested in where we got our information from, the reading list is on the show notes. I think we could both particularly recommend Merchants of Doubt by Naomi Oreskes and, and Eric Conway, which I think is the, is the set text. But there's lots of good stuff in there. And, you know, if you've forgotten the name of that Michael Crichton novel, it's there too. 
We're very excited to announce our second ever live show, which will be at 21 Soho in London on the 11th of July, where we will be talking about origin story subjects and also taking questions from you in the audience because they're always very clever. It's origin story two, the return. After the last days of Rome that ensued in our opening <laughs> premiere show, we've somehow decided we're going to go back to the scene of the crime and do it all again. We'll put a link to buy tickets in the show notes. And if you're in the area, we would love to see you there. And even if you're not, you should be getting an airplane from Arizona or wherever it is that you're listening to this and coming to what will be one of the social events of the season. Perhaps in a series where we devote two episodes to climate denial, do not get on an aeroplane just to come to the live show. <laughs> No one said we had to be consistent. I don't I don't see how that was in the rules and regulations of this thing. We hope to see you there and we'll be back next week for a look at one of the least controversial and easiest to discuss topics of all, Zionism. See you then. Thanks guys, see you next time. Origin Story was written and presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. And the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, with art direction by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.